Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some Bibles there on the back table, and I believe uh, you'll find Galatians chapter 3 on page 566 of those. If you're visiting with us, it's our pattern to preach through whole books of the Bible, and to attempt what we call expository preaching, where the main point or idea in the passage is going to be the main point or idea in the sermon as well. So, this morning, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And then we'll add on verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, let me invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come this morning. We don't really know, (laughs) really, how desperate we are, how needy we are for the ministry of Christ, supplying the Holy Spirit, even now, to help us understand your word, to be able to hear the message of the cross to hear the message of Christ with faith. With faith. And so we pray as that is what you generate. That's what you enable. That's what you give and supply. That for your glory, you would do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So you may know I do some recreational coaching from time to time. And uh, as my own kids know, my coaching does not tend to keep to the sidelines. Uh, Even when I'm not the coach, I'm coaching from the stands. Only when I'm in the stands, my coaching isn't quite as directly influential. On the sideline, like I'm close to the players. I'm central to what's happening, central to the action on the field. I'm locking eyes with the players. I'm able to instruct them. We're molding them, sometimes scolding them. Uh, we are advocating for them with the, uh, the referees and the umpires. We're, we're working with young hearts. We basically scheme, and then we try to model it, and then we speak it into existence, and these kids to their credit, tend to hear what we say and do what we say. And I'll just be honest with you, we win a lot. We're not just heard by them, but we're felt. We're felt by them, and we're trusted by them. But from the stands, my influence is sidelined. Not quite as palpable, it's muted as so many other things that are central to the game that's taking place take precedence. So the other day, uh, one of my daughters, Kate, she's playing volleyball and she's serving and she's gotten into a rhythm serving and the opposing coach, of course, calls a timeout to ice her. And she comes back out from the timeout and I told her as she was looking me straight in the eyes, I said, listen, this is what you need to do to regain your rhythm. She's trying to ice you. Don't let her do it. (laughs) And having nodded at me as if she heard me, she then proceeded to do exactly the opposite thing of what I told her so that on that occasion she lost her serve. She heard me. She even nodded at what I had said to her, but things more central to her mind bewitched her (laughs) and muted my influence. The Christian life can be like that. I heard it a week ago, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But Christ can be decentralized. His influence can be sidelined. His spirit can be muted. We hear Him, we nod, and then we go on and we do the exact opposite thing. We get bewitched and we play the fool, we're like, Thanks so much for all you did to justify me, to allow me to have my sins forgiven, to be counted righteous in God's sight. But you know what? I'll take it from here. Leave the living to me. Why might it seem easier to embrace Christ's sufficiency for our standing with God than for our living to God? Is it, well, we've got to get glory somewhere. You can't have it all, Jesus, even if it injures the truth of justification. Or is it that enduring and maturing as a child of God just cannot be as childlike as what occurred in your becoming a child of God? It has to be more technical. There has to be more 
involved than just keeping Jesus central. It's got to be more involved, more individual, more independent than hearing about Christ crucified with faith. Except that it doesn't have to be more technical than that. For your life, just as for your righteousness, Jesus is enough. Faith in Him is sufficient. Let's see it in our text, starting in verse 1, with this. Beloved, beware. Beware of such a foolish bewitching. Or, in other words, be faithful to the Bible's testimony about Christ and Him crucified. For, as it says, Paul in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are not just have been saved, but to those who are being saved, not just justified, but sanctified, those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. And so dear ones, here's what it is to be foolish and bedeviled. It's disbelieving what God has said about the sufficiency of Jesus for all who believe in Him. It's putting your faith in people who by their teaching or their living or both lead you to distrust the testimony of the cross, which testimony is that Jesus is all sufficient for you. It's being persuaded that there's some kind of shortage or shortfall of grace in Jesus Christ. Here's what it is. It's the guys from James feeling like they need to tell Peter, put a cork in it, Peter. No more partying with the Gentiles. That's bewitch. It's Peter withdrawing from table with Christians in Antioch. And it's Jewish believers in Antioch following Peter's bedeviled example. It's any of those Gentile Christians in Antioch then becoming inebriated, drunk, with, I've got to observe the law in order to be a full-on child of God. It's churches. Oh, foolish Galatians. It's churches. Not only allowing nullifiers of the cross into their assembly, but receiving... Their Christ plus heresy as preferable to divine truth. It's you despairing in your sins as if Christ is not able to forgive you or overcome them. It's our propensity to self-justify as if Jesus did not really pay at all. It's us rushing into our days without prayer, as if you and I were God and Savior enough for everything that awaits us. It's relating to God as if our obedience and not Christ's obedience was the linchpin in that relationship. It's trying to grow in Christ 
over against regeneration logic, the logic of conversion as if we progress in Christ any differently than we began in Christ. Beloved, it's believing there's any aspect of your life and eternity that the risen Jesus did not die to meet, subdue, and satisfy. It's believing His life, not enough. His death, insufficient. His resurrection, nope, not enough to supply every soulful longing and need I could ever have. It's hearing the truth as it is in Jesus in all of its living power, only to scoff at it as too weak to reclaim you from the edge of spiritual desert and ruin. So you, you just keep on in your spiritual apathy and your pity and in your error. And any time you or I settle right there, we are to know we are under a spell. We're bewitched. And though at times we kind of like it out there on that edge. Because it gives us the illusion of self-determination. Self-sufficiency. Out here, there's something I can do. I'm able, I'm strong, I'm worthy, and by golly, people like me. Still, that's a foolish bewitching that's got to be cured. And the remedy is one. Verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was, here it is, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as what? Crucified. The remedy is one. This past week, Pastor George and I read an old excerpt uh, on the, uh, the cure of souls. Sounds old, doesn't it? The cure of souls. And in it, the author makes an analogy between the work of physicians, doctors, and the work of pastors. In the faithful performance of their labors, it's good for both of them, physicians and pastors, to be well acquainted with as many ills as possible. But, whereas the body can have so many ills and so many remedies, different remedies to match them, the soul has really one great cure for all its diseases. And as a preeminent example of that, the author of this excerpt speaks of a dying widow. A dying widow who was at that time renowned for dying so triumphant a death, as he puts it. He's at her bedside. Her pastor asked her how she had kept such assurance of God's favor, both in that hour as she had all her life since she believed in Christ. And this was her answer. It doesn't disappoint our purpose in the least. It was not by scouring her life, her life, for evidences of grace in the past, but, quote, is not me, this is the quote, by direct acts of faith 
on the Son of God at present and steady reliance upon His all-sufficient, and not my words, it's a quote from a long time ago, all-sufficient righteousness. So, somewhere along the way, that dying widow learned to keep Christ crucified before the eyes of her heart. That the only cure for this kind of bewitching in our passage is God's kind of beholding Jesus. Do you know him like that? In the excerpt again, the author defined pastoral ministry as, quote, the duties of a spiritual physician to so many immortals. And it struck me, perhaps that's why there's not a lot of this cure, Jesus Christ as crucified in our churches today. The soul's not a very great thing. The people are not immortals. Our destiny is not eternity, for better or for worse. We're not concerned with giving guided tours to heaven. We just want to fill seats with felt needs that we can meet in our own strength. And for that, we do not have to go to dying men as a dying man to publicly portray Jesus Christ as crucified. Nice, conversational, pithy, feel-good talks will do. And such folks in ministries are implicitly telling you, they're implicitly telling the people, we will take the world gladly over your soul. Not like it's all that valuable. Do you even have a soul? Regardless, bewitched, it's fine. It's not as if there's a cure worth preaching for that anyway. May that never be here with us, church. I don't know what ails your soul this morning, but I know on the basis of God's Word and with all my heart that hearing about Jesus as crucified holds the remedy. And that that's why we must preach Him and His sufficiency always into eternity. Flowing from the cross, Jesus saves. Jesus sanctifies. Jesus supplies. And God, help us never to forget that by sidelining that message or decentralizing Jesus as crucified. Let's beware of such a foolish bewitching as we see here in the text. And instead, instead speaking of Christ's sufficiency, let's see next the source of the spirit of sonship. The source of the spirit of sonship. 
Uh, maybe you were expecting Paul to go in a different direction. Maybe you thought he was going to go in the direction of justification, right? He's just come from there. He's about to go in that direction. But then we get verses 2 to 5 right in the middle, and you're like, what are you doing, Paul? Well, what he's doing is he's sitting on another blessing of the all-sufficient Christ. We know him as the Holy Spirit. It's somewhat humorous. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once quipped about some churches in his day how they were so lifeless one could be excused in visiting them if they came away wondering if there actually was a Holy Spirit at all. There is. And may we prove it as a people. But the reason Paul comes now to the Spirit is that the Spirit is, as one put it, quote, the defining blessing of the Messianic age. The defining blessing of the Messianic age. He, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee that what Jesus did on the cross is entirely enough. He's ascended. He's been received by the Father. The Father gives Him the Spirit. Christ pours out the Spirit. It's entirely enough. The Spirit is the evidence that we belong to the people of God. No part-time or probationary status. Where the Holy Spirit is, who needs circumcision? Where the Holy Spirit is, who needs food laws? John the Baptist, you may remember, he prepared us for this. I baptize you with water. We love that. But he who comes after me, who is mightier than I am, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, in Acts chapter 2, under the preaching of Christ, that's it. Pentecost happened. So that later, in Acts chapter 15, when the Judaizers were wanting Gentile Christians to be put under the yoke of the law in order to be full-time Christians, Peter, he actually gets it right. Good on Peter for once. I'm just kidding. Peter's great. But Peter says this in that council. He goes, God bore these Gentiles witness. How so? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did with us. And that was sufficient. They did not need to become Jewish to become Christians. The Holy Spirit was God's own signet upon them. By faith alone, I have cleansed them. By faith alone, they are mine. By faith alone, they too, as we also, have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. This discernible reception of the Holy Spirit says, these are really children of God. These are Christians. So, Paul has one main question, several questions actually in the passage, but one main question for these churches. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit, verse 2, 
by works of the law? Were any of you observing Jewish holy days before you? Okay. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing about Christ and Him crucified with faith? Notice. Notice the very pastoral nuance here, okay? The question is not, I don't know, have you received the Holy Spirit? That's not what Paul says. He says, how did you? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? And how did we? The question's about sufficiency. Was faith in Jesus enough, or did we earn that? Did we merit God's Spirit by our obedience to God? If so, Jesus died for nothing. Because it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. We need to understand, just as John the Baptist, Paul identifies one person upon his work as the all-sufficient supplier of the Spirit, and that person is Jesus. That's so obviously true, isn't it? You did not receive the Spirit. You were not born again. You were not united to Jesus. You were not raised from the dead to live to God when you were, if ever you were, holy and worthy and waiting expectantly. No. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? You received the Spirit when you least expected it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Christ's eye diffused a quickening ray. And I woke. That's it. I woke. The dungeon flamed with gospel light. And then my chains fell off and my heart was free. And I rose and I went forth and I followed Thee. And that's it. No one has received the Spirit any other way but by sovereign grace producing faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our conversion is owing to the Spirit-giving sufficiency of the risen Lord. And from this, Paul asks now about our progress in the Christian life. Just hit on conversion. What about sanctification? What about it? He says, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Now pay careful attention. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Tom Schreiner is one of my seminary professors. He said, this is one of the most important verses for the Christian life. Verse 3. It says, we grow in Christ the same way we were born again to Christ. 
Isn't that so easy for us to mess up? So let's not mess it up. Paul is teaching that our justification and our sanctification are distinct, but also inseparable graces. By faith in Jesus, Jesus is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. He, His obedience, is our justification. And the one He's forever justified, we were here a week ago, He is also, there you go, vivified, regenerated, made alive. They go together. They go together. But they do not ebb and flow together. Whatever the waves are in our living for Christ, our standing with God rooted in what Jesus has done for us never wavers, never changes. And folks, like the false teachers in Galatia, like confessional Catholics, like Mainline Protestants, mostly. Like more healthy, apostolic Christians and churches who take their eyes off the cross, we all vitally mistake this. The opponents are urging these Galatian churches the perfection, the perfection of your Christianity in terms of Junctification or janctification, justification, sanctification mixed, okay? Junctification, it demands the practice of Jewish law. So you stay an uncircumcised, hog eating Gentile who abstains from Jewish rites and holy days, you're blemished. You are imperfect. If you're justified at all, you're not as justified as me. And so they're equating justification and sanctification so that both of them are destroyed. <clears throat> but what Paul's saying is, growth in Christ will go with standing in Christ without bleeding into it and becoming one with it. Christ is your righteousness. Hear that. And, hear this, you must progress in personal, practical righteousness. But then it's just there that we're still prone to live confused as Christians. So please see, as last week, Justification is not a license for extended spiritual adolescence. We love that today. We love being 40 years old and acting like we're 15. Extended adolescence. Never grow up. Okay. That's not good. And it's not good spiritually either. When Paul talks about being perfected, he's talking about maturation. Growing up, having been born again, you're not to stay a baby. You're to grow up in Christ. And the question is, how so? How does that happen? And I think our standard answer is, 
spiritual disciplines. Grit your teeth. Put on your army boots. Buckle it up. Let's get going. Discipline yourself for godliness. We're doing a podcast series right now on spiritual disciplines. Okay. So pray and read the Bible and make it to service and make sure you go to Bible study and be with other Christians and so on and so forth. And they're all great things, by the way. But what we're tempted to do then is turn means of grace into do this and live. We sort of rewind the clock to when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We turn back time to when we were not alive to God. When we were not yet crucified with Christ. We think like our old self used to think. As if that you has not been nailed to the tree, died, and risen again. The newness of life. Having begun by the Spirit, we do this really weird thing. We try to grow spiritually by the flesh. Our doing even great things like attending to biblical preaching or reading so many edifying books become, listen now, got to be careful with our words, they become what we trust for heart change. And insofar as we do that, we stunt rather than fuel our progress in the Christian life. The argument is very fine, but it's so immensely vital. How do we grow? The same way we were born. That's what he says in verse 3. How were we born? By the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit producing faith in Christ as you hear about Christ as crucified. What did Paul say last week in chapter 2, verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in that man who preaches every week. No. Paul loves him some books. But he doesn't live by faith in the books. I live by faith. What? In the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That equals the cross. So we do not live independently on prayer, church. We do not live independently on preaching, dear ones. We don't live, mature, progress, not as intended, by reliance upon works of the law or means of grace that we turn in that direction. We live upon a person who is living in us. We come to, a spir- to spiritual adulthood by relying on Him who loved us as in the cross. There's an account of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a great preacher. Maybe one of the greatest ever. And uh, someone supposed him to be sort of this miserable person whenever he couldn't preach. He was such a great preacher. He seemed to enjoy preaching so much 
right? He was so passionate and fiery and earnest and zealous and logic on fire, right? You can't get to do that. You must be a miserable person whenever someone else walks into the pulpit for you. And he said this, not at all. I don't live upon preaching. I live upon a person. So also, in his dying words, one father left a message for his son. Both of them were pastors. He said, tell him, his son, What words to say as you're on your way to glory? Ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. Ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. That is this. I say it all the time. You want to grow in Christ? You want to grow in Christ? Just see Jesus. That's it. See Him as He is. See the truth as it is in Him. See Christ loving you on the tree. And seeing it as much as you possibly can, soak in that likewise. And the Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, will honor that. And you will know His sufficiency. And knowing His sufficiency, then you'll pray. Then you will devour the Word of God. Then you'll serve the church with all your heart, with gladness and joy. Then you'll love to gather. You'll love the assembly. You'll love to commune with the body of Christ. Then the means of grace will be graceful indeed, and you will grow up in Christ. By faith in Christ as crucified, the Spirit converts you. And by the same, the Spirit sanctifies you. And by the same, the Spirit will hold you fast. Did you, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Dear ones, you know the call to Christ is costly. However modern gospel presentations try to cover over the cost, Jesus does not. It's take up your cross and follow me. You ever wonder why it's not follow me and take up your cross? Hmm. Take up your cross. You got to bite on the cost. I'm worthy. Take up your cross, follow me. It's not follow Moses. It's not follow the law. Both of them, they they lead to me. So you take up your cross and you follow me. But you can't follow me without taking up your cross. 
That's the moment of truth. But you do that, you'll find, as we go along together, that I am enough for all the crosses that come your way. Why, does Paul say, are these false teachers pushing Christ plus law for justification? Why are they doing that? Because they do not want to be persecuted for Christ plus nothing. They don't want to be lit up for the cross. That's what he says in chapter 6. Turning to man's version of relating to God, man's religion never offended any natural man. But there's no really turning to Christ and Him crucified and the sufficiency and efficacy of salvation by grace through faith alone, but all the world of men will turn on you. As was happening in Galatia. So Paul's question is, was it all for nothing? Was it all for nothing? We heard one in prayer this morning seeking to be faithful to share Christ and crucified. And the difficulty, the trial that's coming with that. Was it all for nothing? Is it for nothing? Do we endure it all? The anger, the pushback, the reviling, the slander, being jettisoned for Jesus only to jettison Jesus? Man's opposition only confirms God's grace. Saints, Paul says, what are you doing? Who has bewitched you? Here's what you're not doing. You're not trusting Him who said both. It's those who endure to the end who will be saved. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. (laughs) You can either live for comfort, trust yourself, and be condemned. Or you can live to God trusting in Christ and find Him sufficient for all you will ever suffer for believing the gospel. He, verse 5, supplies the Spirit. That's Paul's point. He supplies the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, regenerated you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you. The Holy Spirit preserves you. The Holy Spirit holds you fast. What miracles, conversion, sanctification, 
preservation. What miracles the spirits worked among you and what miracles remain to be worked out. But who supplies the Spirit? Are we really going to act as if God in Christ supplies His Spirit to us on the basis of our obedience to the law? Do we call down the ministry of the Holy Spirit by our upward nobility? But because of sin, as a principle and in us, the law only accuses and accurses us. We cannot merit, we cannot merit Christ's blessing, but Jesus can. And Jesus has. He is the Christ. And having redeemed us through the cross, from the curse of the law, He has opened up a tap on that fountain. The Holy Spirit. Okay. But how can we drink? That's what we want to do. Don't we? How can we drink of that fountain? How can we get fresh supplies? We want to see souls saved. Right? No? Yes. We want to see souls converted. And not just in one or two, but sweeping through this community. We long to be more like Him. You know that. Because you don't sin as a Christian without going, God, what is wrong with me? You long to be like Him. The Spirit in you longs to be like Him. You're grieving Him and you feel that. We're hurting we're not going to make it. And we need help. What shall we do to be sufficiently supplied? <laughs> Same as you did at first. That's what Paul's saying. Same as always. However irritating it is to our flesh. <laughs> it is so irritating. Because we want to know what to do. The answer is, believe. Believe what God has revealed about Jesus. What did Peter preach? What did the people hear when Pentecost happened? What did he preach? Go back to Acts chapter 2 this afternoon. Go see what Peter preached when the Spirit was poured out and 3,000 souls were converted just like that. It wasn't some sophisticated, systematic 
theological understanding of the doctrine of justification. They heard the truth about Jesus and believing it, all the rest ensued. The Spirit was supplied. The church was created. God's temple was built up. The world was then engaged. And nothing has stopped it since then. And nothing else but faith in the all-sufficient Son who loved us and gave Himself for us can keep it going. Keep it in rhythm. Keep it from being iced over. The law itself says so. And so we have one second for verse 6. It's a hinge verse. It'll throw us into all that follows here in Galatians. It hits the nail on the head here while swinging open to Paul's scriptural support for the sufficiency of faith in Jesus Christ. And it brings us to Abraham for rest. How was Father Abraham? Had many sons. How was he justified? Yeah. I mean, seeing that the law did not exist until about 500 years after Abraham, I'm going to say not by works of the law. Or I'll just say what God says, and Paul quotes, that while Abraham was an established sinner, if you've been in our Bible studies on Sunday nights, you know, an established sinner and doing his best impression in Genesis 15 here, doing his best impression of doubting Thomas, oh, I'll never believe it. I'm so old. He made this promise to me. It's been like a couple decades since then. Never going to happen. Eliezer. It's going to be my son. My heir. And God says, not so fast. In that moment, God reasserts His promise to Abraham. And it says, Abraham thought about Moses. No. Abraham believed God. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So see there, it's not just what Abraham believed, but who. Abraham took God at His word that he would do everything that was necessary to make good on the Christ that he had promised us. So without the law, long before Moses, Abraham believed God about Christ and about the church ultimately, and God counted that to him as the righteousness that Jesus would eventually come into the world, live out, and make available to everyone who believes. So friend, if you haven't yet, won't you now believe in Christ? On the cross, you see the only one having done the only work 
that can save you from your sins. Just take God's word for it. He raised him up from the dead. Believe, and you will see. He is an all-sufficient Savior for sinners. Now, beloved, because I know you, I know you're thinking, what does verse 6 have to do with verses 1 to 5? That's what you want to know, isn't it? Great. It's in those words, you see it there? It's right after the little hyphen. Just as, just as. So, how did we receive the Spirit? How do we grow as Christians? How do we take a beating and keep on ticking for Jesus? On what basis does the Son supply the Spirit to us? How is our identity as the people of God, the children of God, continually confirmed? Answer, same way. Just as Abraham was justified by God. It's all through faith. All of it. in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. It's all through faith in the message of the cross. He who has a righteousness to impute to you. He who has an obedience that can justify you also has the Holy Spirit to convert, to sanctify, to preserve and supply you on a regular basis. Jesus is all-sufficient. Faith in Jesus is enough. And the Spirit's clear work among you amply bears that out. For living just as for standing with God. Jesus is all we need. And this morning, we just need to hear that loudly. We need to see that clearly. We need to hold Him centrally. And don't let anyone else ever bewitch you otherwise. Deal? Let's pray. Oh Lord, please, we ask now that You would as you do, supply the Spirit. We so desperately again need His influence, not just in the moment of receiving Your Word, but continually, even as we go out from this gathering, we need Your Spirit to work in our hearts by the beautiful truth of Christ and Him crucified. Oh, please do it, we ask in Jesus' name, for His glory.